You don't have to be alive very long to develop a complicated relationship with authority, power, and leadership. Doesn't take much time navigating life on planet Earth to realize the landscape of authority, power, and leadership is rife with difficulty. Perhaps you've heard the saying, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. So that's one message we get about power. Here's another message. My kids, uh, we, they brush their teeth to this podcast that's two minutes long and gives like information, uh, just like kids trivia, plays games, you know, like you do. And uh, so we were listening to this kid's podcast, like the Toothbrushing Podcast. And one of the trivia games they were playing last week, it was something like this. True or false? You can run a business without someone in charge. And my ears perked up. I'm like, oh, what are they going to say, right? Like, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks Chomper's podcast is like the center of the zeitgeist. But, you know, this is kind of interesting. Like, what are they teaching, what are they teaching kids through podcasting, teeth-brushing things? And so I, I was very curious. What are they going to say? Is it possible to run a business without somebody in charge? And they waited. And while they switched teeth, the woman said, no, it's totally impossible. You can't run something without somebody in charge. So on the one hand, power corrupts. That's what it is to be in charge, is power, right? That corrupts. And then on the other hand, you can't get anything done if you don't have power. And we're just like, hmm, it's complicated. Certainly all of us have experienced that complicated relationship with authority figures in our lives. Maybe it's parents, right? Once you turn six years old, those famous words, why do I need to do this? Because I said so, all of a sudden just don't make a ton of sense anymore, and you're just six. We have a complicated relationship with authority figures. What about teachers? Many of us have experienced teachers who have instilled in us a life-giving desire to learn and a curiosity for the world. And we've also had teachers that make us feel dumb. And teachers who we feel like we're bothering them. What about supervisors at work, like middle management, right? Those folks who take credit for the thing your team did and then they get a promotion. And then we all complain, but that's just middle management, I guess, right? What about pastors, huh? What about those pastors who, they don't have a congregation, they've got a crowd, right? And they, they're just trying to build followers on TikTok, and they're just trying to get more influence and all that jazz. And then, you know, you question, you ask a question, and all of a sudden, like, you, how dare you? You're divisive. You're a spiritually terrible person. And, whoa. But thank goodness for politicians, though, right? I mean, we all... We all are like, man, they're getting it right. Like, they just have a healthy relationship with power and authority, and they do it right all the time, and there's no scandal, and nothing bad ever happens when a politician's in charge. It's complicated. On the one hand, 
Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And on the other hand, we need it. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and start over? There's a story about two U.S. presidents that's been told. One U.S. president, when he was a uh, future U.S. president, he's not president yet, he was arguing his first case trial. The judge pulled him aside after hearing this young lawyer make his arguments. He said, son, you need to quit law. You take, you understand, you're smart, and you take the law, and you manipulate it, and you twist it, and you wield it, and you beat people over the head with it. You're going to be an incredibly dangerous person. I'm asking you now, before you get too deep into this, walk away. Another U.S. president led through incredibly tumultuous times. It was really bad. And up until those, that tumult kept office hours where anybody, anybody, any citizen could come and sit with the president and he would hear their concerns. Both had power. Both did different things with it. Uh, the first person, does anybody know which president that was? No, that's the second person. Yeah, sorry. Abraham Lincoln, yeah, good guy in this. Yeah, does anyone remember who the bad guy is? Nixon. Yeah. What if, what if power doesn't corrupt, but power reveals? I'm not saying power doesn't present temptations, but it's this thing we all have to figure out how we relate to it, and we've all had bad experiences with it. And last week, we heard Paul's vision for the church. He says, hey, I, I'm looking out. I'm seeing something that's not here yet. I want to build something. I want to build a high Hesed people who create belonging and bear fruit that magnifies Jesus. How do you do that? You need leadership. The book of Philippians, in part, if you look at verse 1, it says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to the church in Philippi, and the overseers. What's an overseer? An overseer is someone who oversees something. It's a leader. How do you build a high Hesed relationship? So you're like, what is a high Hesed relationship? Hesed is that enduring connection that brings life and all good things into relationship. How do you build that? We need people to lead the way and to do this. Oh, now it's complicated. How do we lead when it's fraught with so many temptations and ugh, it's like pogo sticking through a minefield? Power can corrupt, but it also reveals. And what Paul lays out in the passage we're going to look at is his vision for power, authority, and leadership in this high Hesed community. And it's totally different than what we've experienced. Paul lays out, hey, here's how we build this. Here's the type of people we need to lead this. This community where we're building joyful attachments, where we're bonding together in love. Who's going to help us lead that? People, I don't like the answer. I'm just going to tell you up front. I do not like the answer. I do not. I just, I wish it wasn't the answer. It is the answer. People who endure hardships well for others. 
That's what leadership is in this new high hesed, high love, high joy community. People who endure hardship well for others. Ugh. I do not like hardship. That's why it's called hardship. But Paul lays out how we're supposed to be led by people who essentially are saying, hey, I'm good at suffering. Let me suffer for you. You can't build something meaningful without commitment. You can't build something that, that really does change communities without grit. The reason grit is required is because hardship comes. And the reason why so many things fall apart is because when hardship comes, along come all the messages. Well, we're doing this wrong. Well, this whole thing is wrong. Maybe this thing isn't working out. Maybe I'm the problem. Another U.S. president had a plaque on his desk, and it just said this. It said, hard things are hard. These are the people leading us, folks. Hard things are hard. And if we want to build a high-hested relationship, we have to grow our capacity to endure hardship. And that's what the passage we look at today, how do we do that? How do we expand our capacity to not run away from hard things, but actually endure them for others? Paul says this. He says, watch me. I'm doing that for you. And then he gives this verse, this awful verse. I'm not, that's going to get ripped out of context and be looped. But this is the verse. It says this. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Here's what Paul's saying. I'm going to suffer for you. I'm going to endure hardship well for you. And then it'll be your turn. Oh, man. One of my concerns about talking about joy a lot, I love joy, uh, I think I'm misunderstood a lot, and people think I'm talking about being happy all the time. I don't, I don't experience myself like this, but people experience me as like high energy, like woohoo! Good morning, it's breakfast time. We're gonna have eggs, we're gonna have omelets. What are we having? Woohoo! That's not been my experience of me, but a few people have told me <laughs> that's how they experience me. And then I'm like, hey, let's talk about joy. And like, <laughs> can we take a breath here for a second? Joy isn't this idea of like, it's fine, it's fine, we're good, let's just stay happy, stay happy, I'm serious. That's not joy, that's some other neuroses. <laughs> what joy is, joy is this, we're glad to be together, someone's face lights up when they see me, and joy is fuel that helps us endure hardships well. So I'm not trying to swing the pendulum to the other side and say, we're not happy all the time. We're miserable all the time. But we live in a world where things don't always go well. People hurt us. People sabotage. We experience shame. 
How do we have joy in those? We have to endure hardships well. And Paul gives us two ways in this passage that we can do that. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. Philippians 1, 12 to 30. It's a longer passage, and the AC is broken. So, just to make sure I'm not reading to myself, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word together? Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. How do we endure hardships well? I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I experience joy. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I'm eager, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. I desire on the one hand to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner consistent with the gospel of Christ, a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Father, if we're going to learn to endure suffering well for others, 
We cannot do it alone. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would illuminate, open our eyes, cause us to have a greater awareness of the truth of your word. Help us to integrate it into our lives. God, we run from hardship. God, help us to sit with you as hardship comes. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. We get surprised by hardship, and it's very easy when hard things start to happen to think we're doing something wrong. See, we have the benefit of hindsight with this passage, right? Like, we read the New Testament like jerks, all right? We're like, what's wrong with those disciples? Like, don't they know in a couple days, don't they know in a couple days he's going to rise from the dead? What's the big deal? It's like, no, they don't. What's wrong with the church in Philippi? Why are they freaking out? Don't they know that in a little bit Paul's going to get out? He's going to die eventually, but he's going to get out? Like, what is the big deal? Don't read the New Testament like a jerk. All right? We, Amy and I were watching this show, and the, and the show is like chronicling uh, these characters who they're like at the very beginning of COVID, and one of them went to Italy, and they're like freaking out. Like, oh no, how am I going to get back to America? And I, I found myself being like, just wait a couple days. Like, they just shut the airports down for like a couple weeks. Like, you have to hang out in Italy for a couple weeks. Oh my gosh. But it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And so, it's very easy for us to read this in a non-empathetic way. Paul is writing to people who are like, uh, what is happening? Right? Like, our leader just got arrested. Is that, or did we, are we doing this right? Like, did we mess up? And look what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, in verse 12, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What's happened to him? He's in jail. And he's saying, look, what has happened to me, my being arrested, has actually served not to stonewall the gospel. It's not a speed bump. It's not a slam door. This is actually moving God's plan forward. And I want to tell you how that is. And it comes through a very odd sentence. It's a very odd sentence. We read it. We go, oh, that's so beautiful. I love that sentence. But it's odd. Let me tell you how I know it's odd. Uh, I was in a Greek exegesis class in seminary. I don't know if you know this, but that's just not a really, that's not a place to find tons of cool cats, okay? (laughs) And so while I'm in this Greek exegesis class, I remember this bro comes in and he like stretches and and he's got new ink, right? This is not a judgment call on tattoos, all right? I'm absolutely not anti-tattoo. Do I have tattoos? Who knows? Like, I'm not telling why, you know, why, who cares, right? So this guy, he's got his new ink, fresh ink, and you can tell, right? It's red. He's like, check it out, guys. And at this point, my Greek was like pretty good. And I was like, what does living Christ, what does that mean, right? And but I was like, nice, right? I'm like, oh, like, what does that say? Goes, Dude, don't you know? It says, to live is Christ. And there was a whole circle of us, and we just went, oh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I wish you had waited until after this class to get that. So just to let you know, a free service I offer to you is if you want to get, like, Hebrew and Greek tattooed on you, like, I'm totally happy to check the grammar so you don't have a forever, like, weird sentence on you. 
But it's a weird sentence. It's verse 21. This is what Paul says. For me to live is Christ. And we're like, true. What does that mean? All right, let me just, let's unpack that for a sentence. Let's just replace the word Christ there. All right, for me to live is mailbox. What am I saying? Right? For me to live is work. What am I saying? Am I saying I feel alive when I work? Or like, oh, life is just work, folks. It's, it's, it's an odd sentence in Greek, and it's an odd sentence in English. And because, because Paul's trying to like pack a ton of meaning into these short words, he's saying two things by this. He's giving us a model and a map for how we can endure suffering for others. He's saying two things by it. Life is about abiding with Jesus, and life is about imitating Jesus. To live as Christ is a way of saying two things. Life is about abiding with Jesus, and life is about imitating Jesus. To live is Christ. Another way you can say it is, to live is all about Christ. To live, to be alive, I need Christ. That's the abiding portion of it. The other side of it, though, another way of what he's saying is like to live, in order to live, to learn to live, we need Christ. And so Paul, in this passage, is modeling both of those things, the abiding and the imitation. And it's really deep and really beautiful. Here's what he's doing. He's like... So often, when we read the New Testament, especially the opening little parts of the book, we're just like, yeah, okay, I don't need to know who wrote it, and what they're, whatever, and we skip it. But Paul says these, like, nuggets in the opening that, that then grow and grow and grow. It's like he, like, sets, like, he pulls these pins out of grenades, and then he just waits. And as the book goes on, boom, boom, boom. It's amazing. Here's what he says in verse 1. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ. All right? And now, in what we just read, he's saying he is suffering for the Philippian church. Okay? Let's put this together. He's identifying himself as a servant. Paul, I'm a servant. That's not random, right? He's not like, I'm Paul, I'm a guy. I'm Paul. These, these letters they knew were going to be circulated around. There's great intention. I'm Paul, I'm a servant. What's this servant doing? Suffering. So Paul is saying, I'm a servant and I'm suffering. I'm a suffering servant. I'm a suffering servant. There's a very famous figure in the book of Isaiah called the suffering servant. It's a very famous passage, Isaiah 53. This is kind of the pinnacle of it. Surely this suffering servant has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's enduring hardship for others. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Paul is saying this, I am being Jesus for you. He's not saying... He's not saying, worship me. He's saying, I am following in my Savior's footsteps. I'm abiding with him. I'm imitating him. And that has changed my identity. I'm a little Christ. 
which is what the phrase Christian means. And we're like, oh, cool. It's really good to be led by people like that. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer. Paul is saying, here's how we lead. Here's how we build a high love, high joy community. I suffer for you. I abide with Christ and I learn from Christ. I do what Jesus did. Then it's your turn. Oh. We can't build anything meaningful without commitment. And it's not just the commitment of the leaders putting this on their shoulders saying, we got this. It's the leaders go first. And they say, I'll endure hardships for you. I'll step in front of the train. I'll take the bullets. Now come with me. Like, I don't want to be a leader. I, don't, I just want to I just wanna follow Jesus. I just want to hang out. I do not see the word and all the leaders in your church. Anybody who wants to serve on a board. None of that. It's been appointed for us to follow in Paul's footsteps. See, we don't experience much leadership like that. The problem is we experience leadership that wants us to suffer for them. But in the kingdom, in these high hesed communities, leaders say, hey, I've suffered before. I'm good at it. I'll do it for you. I'll endure hardships for you. That's what Paul's saying. I mean, look, it's all over this letter. He says this in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain. Right? I'll remain. Why? I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy. What are some of the things that leaders in your life, when things are going bad, what are some of the things they say to you? Hey, do you know how hard it is to lead all these people? And you want to complain about blah, blah, blah? What does Paul say? Hey, I'm doing this for your progress and your joy. He's worried about other people's joy. Because there's two kind of threats to our joy in the midst of this. There's two things we can experience. Like when hard things get hard, they typically get hard in two ways. One is sabotage and one is shame. Paul talks about sabotage in verse 17. Sabotage. People are sabotaging him. Look at verse 17. Uh, there's other people preaching Christ. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing, what? That they can stir up trouble for me. Like, what is happening? Like, why did people do that? Philippi was one of the first churches that was planted that was predominantly Gentile. Up until this point, Paul had been going into synagogues with people who had most of the puzzle pieces and was like, hey, here's how Jesus puts all those puzzle pieces together. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. Now, though, he goes to Philippi, totally pagan, and he starts preaching this message, Jesus estin Christos. Yesu estin Christos. And we're like, what? Jesus is Lord. It's a problem with that sentence, though. There was a mantra in the Roman Empire, and it had a different subject. Caesar estin curios. Caesar is Lord. Paul goes around saying, no, 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 actually Jesus is the one true God. He's not something you add to this, this pantheon of other gods. He's the one true God. That message, people understood that that is an upset to the status quo. In the book of Acts, in the city of Philippi, there's a, a young woman who's a girl. She's a slave. She's demon-possessed. She believes that message about Jesus. The demons leave. What does her owner do? He gets mad at Paul. Why? 
The status quo is upset by Jesus. He was making money off this girl. She was like telling the future. She was scaring people. It was like, whoa, Carrie. I'm not that old. Come on. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, she's like in her right mind. She's healthy. And he's not like, oh, this is great. I just, I was worried about her and I'm so glad for her well-being. No, he's like, my golden goose has died and it's your fault, Paul. Christianity upsets the status quo. You're like, I'm not trying to. By being a healthy person, going into an unhealthy system, unhealthy people see the healthy person as a threat. They may invite you in, but then after that, they, they go after you and they sabotage. And that's what Paul experiences in verse 17. Some people are preaching Christ. Like, fantastic. They're doing it to upset Paul. But here's what's beautiful. Because he's, because he's valuing, abiding, and imitating, do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go into enemy mode. He doesn't say, and here are their names, here are their addresses, make sure they never do anything to hurt anybody else again. These are wild people, and I just want everybody for all time to know his name, blah, 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 right? No, he says, hey, look, whether or not they're doing it for good reasons or bad reasons, Christ is being preached, and I'm going to find joy in that. He's enduring hardships. These people are making him suffer. They're supposing they can stir up trouble for him, and he's not going into enemy mode. Why is he doing that? Because he's imitating the suffering servant. What did the suffering servant do? The suffering servant was on a cross. And while the suffering servant was on a cross, he said some wild things like, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? The people that put him on the cross. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Enduring hardships for others. He was a good son, too. All you moms out there. He's like, oh, man, someone's got to take care of mom. Hey, uh, one of the, John, take care of my mom. Provide for her needs. He's enduring hardships, and he's caring for other people. Paul, because his identity was shaped by, hey, that's my master. That's my teacher. I'm trying to learn from him. Starts doing what his master and teacher did. And in doing so, he endured hardships for others. The other way, that's one way, imitation. The other way, though, that he endures hardship, first through imitation, and the other way is through abiding. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. How does he do it through abiding? Look with me uh, again at verse 19. Here's what he says. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me, this suffering... Me being in prison will turn out for my deliverance, literally my salvation. What's he saying? He's abiding while he's suffering. He's saying, the Spirit of God and your prayers for me are helping my mind get in tune with God's mind. They're helping me see things differently. Your prayers for me and me dwelling with the Spirit are changing my perspective. That's abiding. The Christian message is not simply an invitation to copy Jesus. You heard it beautifully this morning from Mark. His testimony was this. There's life in his presence. We sit in his presence. That's what Paul's saying. Through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, living in God's presence, 
abiding. How do we expand our capacity to endure hardships well? Through abiding. You know, if we don't deal with the things that are making us suffer, it really is like taking a TV that's on and is loud and like, oh, this loud TV is making me uncomfortable. I'm going to push it into a closet and close the door. Ah, there we go. That doesn't make the suffering go away. It actually makes it harder to deal with the next time it comes around. That's not what Paul's doing. Look at him. Because that's the other thing. There's sabotage that creates suffering. There's also shame. Shame creates suffering. Look at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so now, as always, that Christ will be exalted in my body. He's saying that suffering produces shame. What's wrong with me? I'm the only one going through this. What shame wants us to do is deal with that privately. Man, if you tell this, everyone's going to be like, what? You're, you're struggling with what? You didn't know that? Oh, we all figured that out years ago. No, no, keep that private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on you, bro. I heard the definition of a narcissist. A narcissist is someone who is unable to process shame in community. When we take our shame and we deal with it privately, oh, it's just dangerous for everybody involved. But a way we can endure hardships together is to process that shame together. And that's what Paul's doing. He's naming this. Look, Paul had every excuse. Paul had the same excuses. Like you look around church and you're like, I need people who are more spiritually mature to help me through things. Like I'm a, I don't know if you know this, I'm a pretty big deal. I uh, won some awards in Iwana. Been a Christian a long time. You know, I'm pretty good at praying. I know a lot about the Bible. If I'm going to have people help me with suffering, it's not going to be these folks. These folks are going to slow me down. I need real mature Christians, like, you know, probably just people on podcasts. They're too busy, so I don't want to bother them, so I'll just suffer alone and quietly. If anyone had that excuse, it would have been Paul. But who's he bringing into his suffering? The Philippians. The leader is sharing with the people he, he is leading, I'm suffering. This is hard. And in doing so, he's, what verse 12? Advancing the gospel. We are disciples of the suffering servant who endured suffering for us. And because he did, brought life to us. And now Paul, in the same way, says, Church, I'm suffering. And I'm suffering for you. Enduring hardships well creates faith. We, we, we here don't do many um, evening Bible studies. There's a church in South Carolina, though, that a few years ago had an evening Bible study that made the news. And um, it, was a, it was an intergenerational Bible study. There were older people there. The oldest person, I think, was like 87. There's a 23-year-old. Beautiful. And they're studying the Bible together, and they're in a room, and a stranger comes into the room. And nobody knew this kid, young man, and they welcomed him. He sat down right beside the pastor. And they're talking with him, and they start, like, you know, he was sharing his thoughts on the Bible, 
And so they started talking in dialogue, and there were some disagreements, and so they were just talking about that. They prayed together, and while they started praying, the young man opened up his fanny pack, pulled out guns, and massacred the room. His name was Dylan Roof, and that's Second AME Church, South Carolina. Unspeakable evil. I don't even like that I know that guy's name. The oldest person he shot was 87 years old. There's no reason to murder anybody. There's no reason. It's just pure hate to murder an 87-year-old. You know the story. They found racist manifestos all over his website. One of the cruel things he did was he shot everybody multiple times, and he went to an older member and said, I'm going to keep you alive because you're going to make me famous. You're going to tell everybody what I've done. He leaves. He runs. He gets caught. Through a live video feed, this woman stands up and courageously said, when you were our guest, we enjoyed you. We welcomed you in here, and, and, and we liked having you as a guest. And you've done unspeakable damage, but we forgive you. I forgive you, and may God have mercy on you. There's a lot wrong with the church. There are a lot of leaders who have behaved scandalously that have created crisis of faith in my life. But what that woman did, how she endured suffering, unspeakable suffering, stirs up faith in me. If somebody can do that, I think I can suffer for other people. And if she's doing that, because that's what her Savior did, I want in. That's my kind of Christianity. I don't want to leave this. Look, it's no surprise when church doesn't work out. It's no surprise when we behave painfully toward each other. We are a collection of sinners trying to work on our stuff. We bump into each other. But when we can endure hardship for the Hesed, that doesn't stonewall the gospel, it advances the gospel. And the invitation that we all have is to not run from hardship, but to say to hardship, I will endure. Because I'm following a Savior who endured hardship for me. Father in heaven, Father, we just confess our need. Father, life is painful. Life hurts. God, there's so many temptations for us to turn to things that promise to ease our pain. 
But Father, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage together to endure hardship well. And in doing so, we would experience your Son in real and new ways. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.